Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 20 this morning. Acts chapter 20. It's been a wonderful journey as we've made our way through Luke's historical account of the early church. And we come to a passage that certainly I have never preached on. And I don't know if I've heard anybody preach on, but I'm sure there are those who have other expositors who go verse by verse. But I have much to say to you that emerges from this rather obscure text. May I remind you that one of Satan's greatest weapons is deception. And what he wants is for people to hear lies and to believe lies. And one of the ways that he does that is not just by having people be purveyors of lies, but also having men and even women in positions of Christian leadership deprive people of the truth. And we want to make sure, therefore, that we contend earnestly for the faith, as Jude reminds us. Acts chapter 20, let me read the text that we will look at this morning, beginning with verse 1. And after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece and there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he determined to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus, of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. And we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathering together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a certain young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled. For his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Essos, intending from there to take Paul on board. For thus he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we arrived and following the following day opposite Chios. And the next day, we crossed over to Samos. And the following day, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus in order that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, On the day of Pentecost and from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Any observer of Christian churches in our modern era 
we'll quickly notice that what is done in, in the name of Christ and certainly with respect to the issue of ministry is as varied as snowflakes on a, mon, on a, on a winter morning. All manner of things are done in the name of ministry. In fact, ministry has become a rather amorphous, nebulous, formless, shapeless idea that really doesn't coalesce around anything solid or authoritative. You ask a hundred pastors to explain their philosophy of ministry and their priorities for ministry, and you'll probably get close to a hundred different answers. If you read the modern-day evangelical gurus, you quickly discover the same thing. You will find a menagerie of self-proclaimed authorities, each having their own unique philosophy based on typically their own experience, not on the Word of God. There will be endless examples of statistics and marketing techniques and clever strategies to somehow avoid offending people who hate God and are in rebellion to Him. You will learn much about entertaining gimmicks to attract crowds and to somehow keep them because that is certainly a huge issue in these kinds of churches because as many go out the back door as come in the front. You will read much of enticing doctrines that appeal to people's lusts but have nothing to do with what God has promised. And as a result, there is great confusion. There is great deception. There is ineffectiveness in Christian service. And yet there will be massive crowds of people that will follow these kinds of teachers. And of course, this is indicative of the wide gate that will lead to destruction. But what we see tucked away here in this obscure historical narrative in these first 17 verses of Acts 20 is not a, a concise written treatise on a philosophy of ministry per se, even though the New Testament is replete with that very thing in other passages. But rather, what we see here is a living example of what ministry should, and I might also add, shouldn't be. This will be a striking contrast to the apostate Christianity that I believe dominates our religious culture, especially here in the United States. Therefore, I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, Rare passions and forgotten priorities. Now, just to set this up a bit, Luke's purpose here in um, Acts 20 is to document the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. And the structure in Acts 20 is rather straightforward. We see in the first six verses, he, he talks about, Luke talks about what happens between Ephesus to Troas. And then in verses 7 through 12, Paul's ministry in Troas. And then in verses 13 through 17, from Troas all the way to Miletus. And then finally, in verse 18 through the rest of the chapter, there's a description of Paul's ministry to the Ephesian elders that we'll talk about next week. And what's interesting here is that Luke does not go into great detail of all that happened in each of these places, because that's not the purpose of what he was inspired to write. If you want to know much more of what Paul taught in these different places, all you need to do is read some of the epistles, especially 2 Corinthians and Romans and Galatians. But I want you to notice a few things as we look at this text. Number one, as we look at the, the first rare passion and forgotten priority, 
Number one, I would say that that would be a priority to preach the word. Notice in verses one through three, it says after the uproar had ceased or had eased, ceased, there was a riot, you will recall, in Ephesus. It says that Paul sent for the disciples and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through those districts, he had given them much exhortation. He came to Greece and there he spent three months. Will you notice the term exhorted and much exhortation? The term in the original language, parakaleo, means to call to one side. It has the idea of imploring someone or inviting, invoking, warning. It even takes on the idea in the scriptures of, of bringing comfort and encouragement. It literally denotes a, a wooing, if I can use that term. Or to resurrect an old term, to beseech someone. The idea of calling a person with a message to produce a particular effect. And here in this context, it's to be comforted, it's to be encouraged. It's to help people desire that which is true and transforming, as well as to be warned of what will deceive and dishonor God. So Paul here is calling them, wooing them, exhorting them to be obedient to the truth, as well as to comfort them with the great promises that God has given to all who love him and serve him. And this is why Paul would later tell Timothy, we have to preach the word. This was Paul's passion and his priority. Nothing else really matters in ministry. He understood that it is only the word of God that is the power of God unto salvation. So why waste your, your time on gimmicks and jokes and manipulative stories and book reports or some social or political commentary? All you need to do is just proclaim the truth and watch what God will do. And certainly this is the pastor's primary responsibility. We see this all through the scripture. I will remind you once again of what Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4 with respect to pastor teachers. Or in other words, teaching shepherds. And certainly this is the category that God has called me to function in, to serve him, to serve you. He says in Ephesians 4.12 that we're here for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. And the reason for that, he goes on to say, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Well, sometimes people will say, why is this so hard to understand? I mean, I mean, this is so clear all through the New Testament. And why is this so foreign in so many churches? Well, I believe there are many reasons. I'll give you but a few. First of all, I believe it's partly because many men are self-appointed, not God-ordained. Many pastors and bishops are much more entrepreneurs than they are exhorters of divine truth. All you have to do is listen to them and you will see that. The church has become a den of thieves and a carnival of entertainers and con men. Other churches are, frankly, prisons of legalism. 
where overbearing preferences basically dominate the entire life of the church, where people are driven rather than led by a shepherd, driven by domineering demagogues who control their flock through fear and intimidation. As Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 3, lording it over those allotted to their charge. And naturally, whenever there's that kind of abuse in a pulpit, that will undermine the authority of the word of God by replacing it, frankly, with the word of man. And sadly, as well, we see in Christendom today that the Bible is no longer recognized as the word of the living God. It is no longer seen as the supreme authority of life and worship and family and prophecy and godliness and all of those things. And so naturally, if that's one's worldview, people will not be compelled to preach it, nor will they be compelled to hear it and obey it. Ask most people what they consider to be their spiritual authority in life. And they will typically give you the name of a person or the name of a church or the name of some denomination. They will not say my spiritual authority is the infallible, inerrant, authoritative, all sufficient, God inspired word of God, the Bible. They just don't believe that. And yet Paul reminds us in Second Timothy three that all scripture is inspired, literally breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate. Adequate literally means be able to meet all the demands of life, to be adequate and equipped for every good work. Well, not so with the apostles. They understood this. They understood that the priority of ministry was to spend their time in prayer and in the word, as we read, for example, in Acts 6, 4. And Paul even exhorted Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13 to give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And by the way, you're seeing all of that this morning. We have the public reading of Scripture, and then we have the exhortation where I beseech you to not only understand but to obey the truth, and I will teach you some of the great truths of the Word of God, that you might understand who He is and what He is doing in your life and in the world and so on. Beloved, this must be the passion and priority for each one of us, as exceedingly unpopular as it may be. So I challenge you to submit yourself to the loving authority and the exhortation of the word of God. Wherever you know it's going to be preached with authority and with precision, you need to be there as much as possible. You need to hear it. You need to obey it. You need to even exhort your family and your friends. You need to woo them and beseech them. And implore them, beg them to hear the transforming truth of the gospel and be reconciled to Christ and live for his glory. Now, it's interesting how the Luke unfolds this story. And I'm not going to go into great detail with all of it. But we notice in verses three through six, Luke now is going to record uh, Paul's travels to collect money. Remember, he was collecting that for the destitute believers in Jerusalem. Um, he knew that. Many of those families in Jerusalem were being persecuted, and we also know historically that there was a famine in Israel, and so they needed help. And then Luke also documents a growing number of traveling companions who would accompany him back to Jerusalem, each of them, interestingly enough, being Gentiles, 
They are officially representing the various Gentile churches that had shown compassion to their Jewish brethren and the Christian church there in Jerusalem, thus uniting the church together. And then Luke briefly describes yet another attempt on Paul's life. You know, so what else is new? Another attempt by the Jews to kill him as he gets ready to set sail for Syria. And this causes Paul to take a detour and be separated from his companions temporarily. And eventually we see that they all meet there in Troas where they stayed seven days in verse six. Now, notice in verse seven, it says, and on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. Now, let's stop there for a moment. I want you to notice here and in other passages, we see that Christians no longer worship the Lord on the Sabbath. They no longer met on the Sabbath but rather on the first day of the week. This was the day of the resurrection. I want to remind you that the Sabbath was the dominating feature of the law, the Old Testament law. It was the sign of the Mosaic covenant to Israel. And it was literally designed, if you study it, to isolate sinners, to cause them to feel their condemnation before God. In fact, there were literally 11 different Sabbaths that we see in the Mosaic law. And it was a very complicated law with all kinds of restrictions, especially on the Sabbath day. I mean, they had to stay home. They could not cook. They could not work. They could not uh, start a fire. They could not carry a load. They could not buy or sell. I mean, your agenda is out. In fact, to this day, if you go to Israel you will find that there are Shabbat or Sabbath elevators so that on that particular day, if an Orthodox Jew wants to go up a floor, he will not have to punch a button and thus ignite something and light a fire and violate the Sabbath. And so on the Shabbat elevators, and those are the ones that you never want to get on, they stop at every floor automatically up and down. Well, this is the type of stuff that they did. You could not seek any pleasure. You literally had to take inventory of your life. And God did this to cause them to cry out for mercy. And then God would save them by the terms of the new covenant, the sacrifice of Christ, even though it had not yet happened. They were saved by the new covenant, not by the keeping of the law, because it was the sacrificial death of Christ that ratified the new covenant and it was applied to them retroactively. There was never anything in the old covenant that could save them. Now, sadly, there are many people today that want to somehow hold to various aspects of the Old Testament law. Unfortunately, we see this creeping into the whole homeschool movement. And I would caution those of you who are in that movement to be careful with this. There are people that want to impose diet restrictions and the keeping of the Sabbath. Or there's also what we call Sabbatarians who want to apply some of the old terms or some of the terms of the old covenant to the first day of the week on Sunday. And so you will hear all of these things that you can't and can't do on Sunday. But, beloved, please hear me to extricate arbitrarily anything from the Old Testament law especially from this complicated system of Sabbath law restrictions, and then to whimsically import them into the new covenant, not only frustrates grace, but it also diminishes the glory of the cross. So 
But we don't do that. The Sabbath was a shadow of Christ we see in the New Testament. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 speaks to that. And there it says, but now the substance belongs to Christ. And as we look at the New Testament, you'll find not one command to keep the Sabbath. And in all of the Ten Commandments that we see repeated in the New Testament, never is the fourth commandment about the Sabbath ever repeated. There's no Sabbath rules given anywhere in the New Testament. There's no mention of violating the Sabbath. In fact, Christ routinely did that with his disciples. No one is ever encouraged to keep it. No one is ever encouraged to somehow transport any of it into the first day of the week. You just don't see that. In fact, in Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, we find that all of that type of thing was clearly nullified. And anything of the Old Old Covenant was not to be applied to the Gentiles. So Sabbath keeping is obsolete for Christians under the New Covenant. Well, enough of that. I want you to notice something very fascinating here in this text that underscores even further the priority and the passion of Paul to exhort those to whom he was called to minister. I want to just read this again here in verse 7. Notice what happens. This is interesting. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. By the way, talking here is from a term dialegami. We get our word dialogue. It's the Q&A type of thing. He's teaching them, opening up the word of God to them and answering their questions. Again, exhorting them to the truth. And it says, intending to depart the next day, he prolonged his message until midnight. Well, you think I'm long winded. He prolonged his message until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And I think that's significant. On a warm summer night, if you're up in an upper room and you've got lamps going on, it's not going to take you long until what we call the rack monster at our house reaches out and grabs you. And you begin to get sleepy and want to hit the rack. And that's no doubt what happened here. And there was a certain young man named Eutychus. Sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down, fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up, he had and had broken the bread and eaten. He talked with them a long while. We have the same word here, talking with them a long while. Until daybreak and so departed and they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. So he goes on all night long. This is interesting. Now, any good Bible student is going to ask the question, why? Why why would Luke include this story? It, It seems to be a bit of a non sequitur, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't fit. It's like. He's talking about all of this that's happening. And all of a sudden, oh, by the way, this is what happened to Eutychus here. Now, some might say perhaps it's to warn against long-winded preaching. And maybe there's some merit to that. Perhaps it's to even comfort pastors. I mean, I find something comforting to know that they even slept while Paul talked to them, you know. Or perhaps it's to warn those who sleep in church of the inherent dangers of their lack of Attention, I'm not sure if any of that has any merit, but frankly, I believe there are two reasons why Luke included this 
in this particular section of Scripture. Number one, to validate Paul's apostolic authority. Please understand the context here now. Remember, these are Paul's parting words. He's going to go to Jerusalem and eventually to Rome, and he's never going to see them again. And he pretty well knows that. Even though they're going to read much of his epistles later on, as we study even to this day. And certainly the Spirit of God wanted to get their undivided attention and give them a memory they would never forget. Plus, Eutychus here learned a hard lesson, and that is don't sleep in church, especially on the third window sill. But I believe a second reason is possible here, not only to validate Paul's apostolic authority, but to underscore, dear friends, the priority of the word over miracles. Let me explain this. Here we see the power of the word over signs and wonders. Now may I remind you that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, as we read in Hebrews 1. And the Holy Spirit, we know, uses the word as his instrument to produce faith. We are justified by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. The word of God, we know, sustains our faith, not miraculous signs and wonders. And I want you to notice here how matter of fact Luke states this event. It's almost an intrusion into the flow of Paul's prolonged message until midnight. It's almost as if. Luke is saying, oh, oh, by the way, let me stop here. It's interesting. Um, uh, this guy falls asleep. He falls off of the third floor and, and falls to his death. And Paul raises him from the dead. And, and, and then Paul went back to what was really important. Discussing with them the magnificent truths of the word of God, dialoguing with them, answering their questions, exhorting them, teaching, reproving, correcting, training in righteousness. You know, it's almost as if. Paul looks up at his clock after he raises him from the dead and says, oh, my, it's getting late. Um, but, but I do want to make sure you understand these things. So stick with me. Now, now, where was I? And then he continues, the text says, verse 11, all night long until daybreak. And in verse 12, it says they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. You know, I believe the word comforted has to do much more with what Paul was teaching them than the fact that the boy was alive, even though that would certainly bring comfort to the family. And the reason I would say that is the term comforted is once again the same word parakaleo that is used to exhort, to comfort, to encourage. So Paul beseeched them to hear and to understand and to obey the truth, and they were greatly comforted. Praise God, don't you know they said. Praise God for His grace. He has chosen to disclose Himself to us through his apostle, by his grace and his mercy, he has chosen to reconcile us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible comfort this is. How we long to serve him and to see him. Oh, child of God, this is the rare passion and the forgotten priority of a faithful shepherd. And yet, this should be the very core of our ministry. And it was for this reason that Paul told the church at Colossae in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Now, let me digress for a moment. This was an amazing miracle to raise one from the dead. I want to talk to you just for a moment about 
miracles during this apostolic age in Acts. It's interesting. I kind of reflected back in Acts and we see miracles like the miracle, first of all, of Christ's ascension and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with its attendant phenomena of the supernatural ability to glorify God in a previously unknown foreign language, what we call tongues. Then there was the miraculous visions and direct revelation that he gave to certain men. For example, uh, even how God revealed himself to, to Saul on the road to Damascus and, and even to Peter in his vision. There's the healing of the diseased, the healing of the sick, casting out of demons, raising of the dead. There's physical wonders that occurred. I mean, things like buildings shaking and, 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 and uh, in the prison. And then uh, remember Philip being snatched up and snatched away from the Ethiopian eunuch. And then there's miraculous deliverances. I mean, even with Paul and Silas from the Philippian jail, there was protection from violent storms and even even the immunity of the bite of a poisonous viper on Paul's hand, as we will see. There was instant judgment upon the ungodly, like with Ananias and Sapphira and the miraculous appearance of angels, like when Peter was freed from prison. But as we study Acts in the epistles, we notice a gradual disappearance of these kind of miraculous phenomena. And any unbiased student of the historical record will admit that these signs and these wonders, these very, now catch this, public exhibitions of supernatural power intended to compel unbelievers to believe the message and the messenger of the gospel eventually vanished completely. Paul even spoke to some of this in 1 Corinthians 13.8. And I would hasten to add that what appears today in the church age as miraculous is impossible to verify or prove as being supernatural in its origin, often better explained as the providence of God who uses secondary causes to accomplish his purposes. And inevitably, these are done in very obscure and private circumstances. But I want to ask the question, why is this the case? Why did these things disappear? And how can we explain this shift in the divine economy? I believe there's something very important for us to learn here. The key is the idea of the word signs and wonders in Acts. A sign, these miraculous wonders that were occurring, was a sign. And a sign, as we know, points to something beyond. Something that's coming. The writer of Hebrews specifically reminds his Jewish brethren of the miracles that occurred during this period of Acts. And he even exhorts them in Hebrews 2 and verse 1 to pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Lest we neglect, he goes on to say, such a great salvation, so great a salvation. And then later in verses 3 and 4, he says, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord. Now catch this. It was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. And then he further clarified this when he reminded his Jewish audience that these supernatural manifestations that they had witnessed, those that are characterized in the book of Acts, were given to them. They were given to the people of Israel, that they were the generation that were privileged to have, as Hebrews 6, 5 says, 
tasted the powers of the age to come. What's the age to come? What's the millennial kingdom? This is the age of the messianic reign. This is not a reference to the church age that began at Pentecost and they were presently experiencing that. And it's certainly not referring to the eternal state of heaven because there will be no need for such miraculous signs in the glorified state. Let me give you some background here. I really want you to understand this. In the Old Testament, we see God establishing a mediatorial kingdom at Sinai with Moses being his chosen ruler of Israel. Stephen even attests to this in Acts 7.35. And during the period of history, of this period of history, Scripture records many supernatural exhibitions of divine power as a testimony to the nation of Israel. And these miraculous signs that began at Sinai continued until the Shekinah glory of God eventually departed from the Holy of Holies, from from Jerusalem up over the Mount of Olives, over the gate, because of Israel's apostasy. And you read this, for example, in Ezekiel 11, how it moves from the holy place outside the city to the Mount of Olives and then goes completely. By the way, the very place and the very pattern in which the Lord will return when he comes again. Well, these miraculous signs in the Old Testament affirmed to the people that they were indeed God's covenant people, that they were the people of blessing. They were the children of promise whose repentance would one day usher in a glorious messianic age. And this was also, therefore, the burden of the prophets who constantly spoke of Zion's glorious future. And likewise, the Lord Jesus affirmed these promises in his earthly ministry. For example, in Matthew 11, too, we read when now when John, referring to John the Baptist, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered to them. And here, by the way, he quotes Isaiah 35 and 61. He says to to these messengers, you go back to John the Baptist and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, beloved, you must understand that all of this was even reaffirmed by the apostles now in the book of Acts as they testified to Israel. Now, here's the point of all of this. I want you to understand that I believe with all my heart that the miraculous signs and wonders of the apostolic age characterized in the acts of the apostles were given to the Jews, not only to authenticate the message message and the messenger of the cross, but to confirm the offer of the kingdom to Israel. This was consistent with the message of the forerunner, John the Baptist. What did he preach? Matthew 3, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word heaven was a euphemism for God's name. And they used that to honor the sensitivities of the Jews who would not say God's name. Repent, you could translate it, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Likewise, the very first words of Jesus' earthly ministry in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And the message was simple. If you repent, your long-awaited messianic king is here. The kingdom is here. You have tasted elements of it in the miracles and the signs and wonders that have pointed to it. But, of course, we know what happened. They refused to repent. They rejected the king. They even executed their king. And as a result, all of their eschatological hopes were dashed. The earthly kingdom ruled by Messiah was postponed and now awaits his second coming. Therefore, by the end of the historical era that we see described in Acts, in other words, through Acts 28 and even the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, which was about 10 years after the final uh, scenarios of Acts were, were, were written, we see that those miraculous signs that pointed to the kingdom age all disappeared. And they will not appear again until the Messiah returns in great glory and in judgment and makes good on his Old Testament promises. When, as we are promised in the word, all Israel will be saved and they will be grafted back into the root of blessing from which they have been temporarily excised. It's important for you to understand, by the way, again, the Jewish rejection of their Messiah did not nullify the unilateral, unconditional, irreversible covenants God made to Abraham and David concerning the establishment of an earthly kingdom. It only postponed it. To be sure, the custodianship of divine truth was taken from the Jews who rejected it. It was transferred to the Gentile church. Luke 20 and verse 16 makes this very clear. It speaks of the Jews who killed the prophets and killed the son. That they were the ones that would lose the vineyard, the vineyard referring to the sphere of, of God's saving purposes, the privilege and responsibility of disseminating divine truth. And so for this reason, the gospel was taken to the Gentiles. In fact, we read in Matthew 21, 43, Lord saying, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. From whom? Well, from the chief priests and the elders, the civil and religious authorities bent on destroying Jesus, not from the nation of Israel, whose covenants and rights are irrevocable. He says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. The keys of the kingdom were indeed taken from those Jewish leaders and given to a new people with a new set of leaders, namely the apostles, the New Testament prophets, the evangelists or church planners, missionaries and teaching shepherds. These all became the new vine growers. And certainly the Jews were set aside and a new guardianship was established in the Gentile church. But you must understand, beloved, that this transfer is not permanent. In Luke 21, 24, we read that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until there's a word of hope until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And certainly there will be a restoration and a new birth for the nation of Israel. And we even see today the miracle of God's preservation of his beloved enemy, the Jew. Because of divine election, dear friends, and solely upon sovereign grace, the kingdom will be bestowed upon a regenerated nation when, according to Hosea 2.23, they will say to them who were not my people, God will say to them who were not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. My, what a magnificent redemption 
The world will behold when the universally hated nation of Israel, the Jew, will finally be restored to its ancient status of divine favor. And to think how even we as Gentiles will participate in this glorious earthly kingdom in a renovated earth. Oh, what exhilarating promises these are, dear friends. Don't let them escape you. Let them motivate you to serve the Lord. The millennial kingdom is the bridge in the universal kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom between our historical era in the church age today and the eternal state. What a day of rejoicing to see our Savior rule and reign over the whole earth. So again, the signs and the wonders of Acts were given, I believe, not only to authenticate the message and the messenger of the gospel, but also to authenticate the offer of the Messianic kingdom to Israel. They refused it. They rejected it. They executed their king. And so the authenticating signs ceased. And they will not appear again until the Messiah returns. Now back to our text. We not only see Paul's passion and priority to preach the word, but I see something else here. And this is another rare and forgotten Passion and priority. Secondly, we see a love for sinners and saints. Don't you see this? What a theme. It it, it goes without saying, doesn't it? Beloved, I I want you to just think in your mind. I'm not going to take time to go back through all of it, but just think of all that Paul has endured thus far in his missionary endeavors. I mean, the beatings, the imprisonments, the torture, the poverty, the, the constant fleeing for his life. The humiliation, the ridicule, but he never gives up. He just keeps on going, preaching and teaching. And now here in verses one through seven of Acts 20, we see him covering this vast geographical area. By the way, it's good for you to pull out your maps when you study the word of God and you will see this unfold before your very eyes. I mean, he goes from Ephesus and Asia Minor to Troas, which is across the Aegean. See, to Macedonia, to Achaia, to Greece. Then he goes back to Macedonia and then back again across the Aegean Sea to Asia. And then in verses 13 through 16, we see that he had to have walked or maybe ridden a horse 20 miles from Troas to Asos. And then eventually he arrives at Miletus, which is 30 miles uh, south of Ephesus, where he, he asks the elders to come down to him. And later we're going to see that he boards another ship and he he finally makes his way all the way across the Mediterranean Sea to Tyre. And then it's about uh, 120 miles or so south down to uh, Jerusalem. And whether he walked or rode a horse, we don't know. But friends, just think of the amazing stamina and dedication it took for this choice servant of God to do all that he did. What would drive a man like that? Well, it wasn't money. It wasn't power. It wasn't prestige. Beloved, it was a love for sinners as well as for the saints. I'm continually struck with this. His self-dedication, his tireless involvement with people, his concern for even other believers who were in financial need, his boldness in the face of proclamation. Dear friends, these are indeed rare passions and forgotten priorities. Of most Christians who frankly balk like stubborn mules when asked to do any kind of Christian service beyond just kind of showing up for church on Sunday morning. Unfortunately, this is what defines the extent of most people's Christianity. 
just kind of show up for church. No other spiritual service during the week. For most, no other spiritual discipline during the week. You just kind of go get your brownie points in the sky on Sunday morning and leave it at that. I ask, where is your love for the lost, if, if that is you? Where's your love for the Word? Where's your love for other brothers and sisters in Christ that even need your gifts that God has given you for the purpose of building up the body? Where is your love for the Lord? Now, you have to answer this before the Lord. But I know for me, when I'm living in that type of a context, there's really no love for the Lord there. It's a love for self. You show me a person that has nothing else to do with the Lord except showing up for church every now and then on a Sunday morning, and I'll show you a person that probably does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they do know Him, they are living under divine chastening and they are forfeiting blessing in their life. And beloved, if that is you, I humbly warn you as a servant of God, you need to examine your life and you need to get serious about loving the Lord and serving Him. It's tragic, even many times with pastors and elders. I frequently hear these stories of pastors, for example, being completely inaccessible. People want to talk to their pastor, they can't get to them. They've got to go through layers of other people. Or even in some smaller churches, I've heard of pastors that, that really want nothing to do with the people. They just kind of show up and do their, their thing in a pulpit and go home. I, I just, uh, you just don't see that. How can you be a shepherd and live apart from your flock? Not so with the Apostle Paul. And may I ask you to measure your life, measure your ministry against that of the Apostle Paul. How does it compare? What will you do with the admonitions that you're hearing even today? Let me put it a little more bluntly. What are you doing right now with the convictions in your heart? Well, may I draw your attention to one final observation Something else that I believe is rare and forgotten in our modern evangelical world. We've seen a priority to preach the word, a love for sinners and saints. But can I give you one more that I see here? And that is real simply a disinterest in money. We see a disinterest in money. Dear friends, you will look in vain to find Paul pleading for financial support for himself. I mean, he's certainly not preaching some prosperity gospel. Hey, everybody, you know, come to Jesus and he's going to, you know, help you get this uh, Mercedes chariot, you know, and live in some great castle or whatever. I mean, what a blasphemous thing that is. I mean, yes, there's his, his uh, pleading for collection for the poor, for other saints that are in need. And 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 we see in other of, of his epistles, he states the principles of, of financial giving and, and especially in his letters to the Corinthians. And he gives appropriate announcements about some of the needs. But, dear friends, we never see any pleading for money to support his ministry. You, don't, you just don't see that. You don't see even any, any pleading to somehow advance the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. You know how rare this is. I would challenge you. You get on television and listen to most of the televangelists and most of the preachers, and they will spend more time begging for money than they will teaching the word. Obviously, we see the same omission even in the ministry of Christ. 
I mean, when, when the disciples come to him, he doesn't say, OK, guys, you know, I need, I need to get your money here. We've we got to build up our coffers. And, and by the way, you're going to get a whole lot of money in return later on. No, you don't see that. He doesn't say, give me your money so I can spread the word. Rather, what did he tell them? He says, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. I mean, you see the contrast? I mean, how do we miss this? The Lord is basically saying, look, don't rob yourself of the blessing in giving here. Remember when the beggar asked Peter for alms? Peter said, I, I don't have any silver and gold, but, but, I, but I can bring healing and I can bring you the gospel. It's fascinating to think how the gospel of Christ spreads like a brush fire all the way from Jerusalem, all across Asia. Imagine that. All the way to Rome in three years without any mass fundraising campaign. You stop and think of the logistics of that. Obviously, ministry requires money. We know that. And we all must give according to our means. You know, the Lord's very clear about that. The difference is two things that stand out to me here. Number one, God does not depend on our money to glorify himself in building up his church. He's not pacing around up there saying, oh, man, I hope they open up their checkbooks, because if they don't, we're in a world of hurt. I mean, that's not the sovereign God of the Bible. By the way, if that were the case, guess who would take the credit? We would. And we would get the glory, not him. But we know God is sovereign. He has promised to build his church. But the second thing that that I see here is that. Not only does God not depend on our money to glorify himself in the building up of his church, but secondly, God does use faithful, selfless, tireless, fearless servants to accomplish what the world would consider impossible. There's no budget at the beginning of Paul's ministry. There's no war chest. Again, we walk by faith, not by sight. So, beloved, don't, don't, don't ever assume that ministry is somehow dependent upon money. That the spread of the gospel is proportionate to financial resources. The missionary success here in Acts disproves all of that. The spread of the gospel of Christ is utterly unstoppable when powered not by money, but by spirit-filled servants doing God's work, God's way. So may I challenge you, won't you embrace this morning these rare passions and forgotten priorities? Won't you say, oh God, yes, today I'm going to recommit myself to proclaim with passion the word of God, to exhort my family and my friends, to woo them, to beseech them, to encourage them in the truth. And Lord, I'm going to recommit myself to have a love for not only the sinners, but also for saints. I want to spend myself in evangelizing the lost, as well as doing all I can to encourage others, brothers and sisters in Christ, in my church family and in other places. And then finally, Lord, I want to be a good steward. But I want to serve you, Lord, regardless of the issue of money. I don't ever want money to become my focus in ministry because I know, Lord, what you need far more than my money is my availability. Won't you ask yourself these questions today?
And perhaps by God's grace, you will experience life changing conviction and you will enter into the glorious battle for the truth. What a joy it is to serve Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts are filled with such joy when we contemplate not only what you did in the first century in the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome, but oh God, to see what you have done from that day to today. And then, Lord, to know what you are going to do from here on out. Lord, you get all of the glory. But I do pray for myself as well as for all who are within the sound of my voice that you will convict us to be like the Apostle Paul. To be fearless, to be tireless, to be sacrificial, to be selfless. Lord, that you might receive all of the glory, but that we might receive the great joy and blessing, not only in this life, but especially in the life to come. Lord, I pray especially for those who are here today that know nothing of the Savior that we proclaim, nothing of the Jesus that we love. Lord, I pray that overwhelming conviction will steal over their heart and that, God, by your grace, you will bring such conviction to them that they will run to the cross and repent of their sins and experience the glorious grace of redemption through Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.